0: When I read a poem that I really like, I'm constantly trying to find its place and try to find something to put up alongside it to give me a bounce. Hello, I'm Abram Banning.
1: And I'm Joanne Diaz.
0: And this is
2: Poetry for All.
1: And today we are delighted to have David Baker as our guest. He'll be guiding us in our discussion of a poem by Carl Phillips. And
2: Carl, for those who don't know, is one of the most highly regarded poets in America today. He has a dozen books of poetry, several works of criticism, and a whole stash of well-deserved prizes and honors for his incredible work. His most recent book is called My Trade is Mystery, Seven Meditations from a Life in Writing, which I'm excited to jump into over Thanksgiving break. And we get to talk about this fantastic poet and writer today with his friend, another fantastic poet and writer, David
1: Baker. David Baker is the author of 13 books of poetry and six books of prose. He has served as the poetry editor of the Kenyan Review for 25 years. His most recent collection of poems is Whale Fall, and it is magnificent. Uh, So, David, thank you so much for joining us for today.
0: It's my absolute pleasure.
2: Well, today we'll be reading a poem called To Autumn. David, would you be willing to read that poem for us?
0: You bet. To Autumn. Whatever it is that some nights can rescue cricket song, From becoming just more of the usual white noise tonight it's working the hours toss with the apparent weightlessness of leaves when each leaf seems for once its own dream not part of the larger more general dream of leaves being limited to tossing with either diminishment Or renewal, when why should those be the only choices? What about joy and despair? What about ambition? If wild, I was once more gentle. There's a version of autumn where the stars' reflections on the river tonight look at one moment like freight thrown overboard at the next like signal lights cast up through water by a city submerged where the river's deepest there's another version holiness has no limits there only two requirements to be hidden to adore what's hidden
2: hmm That's a great reading. David, when we approached you about talking uh, about a Carl Phillips poem, there were a lot of options on the table, and this was one that you threw our way. So I'm just curious, what is it about this poem that drew you uh, and made you want to do this one in particular?
0: I uh, last spring taught a course in contemporary poetry, and we spent quite a lot of time in that course with Carl's book, Then the War, which is a gathering of his poems from the last 15 years or so. And my students really liked this poem. And part of the reason they liked it is that it had a little bit different position in their imaginations to something like the literary canon. It makes more explicit some of its relationship to other poems. And in in fact, in this poem, obviously to John Keats and Keats's great poem to autumn which is an ode one of the great odes of Keats, and is directly related to carl's interest in the odic tradition and the odic structure so there's partly that when i read a poem that i really like i constantly trying to find its place and try to find something to put up alongside it to give me a bounce, yeah. maybe something to compare it with. So it was partly that. Partly, it's just a gorgeous poem.
2: Maybe we could just say a word for our listeners about what uh, the Odic tradition is and why that might have appealed to Carl and how he is, in fact, making some kind of reference to John Keats. So just so listeners know, we have a prior episode of Poetry for All, on the John Keats Ode to Autumn. And so now we have a, a second poem called to Autumn. And usually when poets use the same title again, they are making a gesture, <laughs> right? <laughs> there, there is some way in which they understand themselves to be part of this tradition and speaking into and from it and to it. So uh, I'm, I'm wondering if you could just say a word about what is the Odic tradition and how do you see it at work
0: here? It's, that's an interesting thing. The ode is a difficult form to write these days. It, it's a form of enthusiasm and praise, at least mm. in Pindar. you know. So we're talking about Greek lyric poetry of something like 400 BC. So we're going way back. But Pindar's odes celebrate, they tend to celebrate victories, athletic victories. Here's George from my town and George mm-hmm. to the javelin much farther than your your person. So not only is George the best javelin thrower, our town is the best town. It has that sort of community voice. It's very hard to speak in the communal voice these days to presume that any lyric poet can speak in behalf of a lot of other people. So I find that an interesting irony. First of all, Carl is a very intimate poet. He's not going to speak in global or national terms. So that's, that's one thing about the ode. Carl writes about the ode, in fact, in Horace and about horace's turn toward a kind of language of intimacy he's not writing a poem to be sung the way Pindar was he's not Mm. writing a poem to be accompanied by music but probably writing a poem to be read or a poem for his own imagination that's much more like carl so that's some of the odic Mm. stuff there's another really interesting thing the more i looked at carl's poem more i was amazed by the structure of this thing the ode structure is pretty basic in Pindar. It's got three parts, the strophe, the anti-strophe, and the epode. That is, the chorus moves in one direction and says something, then the chorus moves in another direction and says something else entirely, and then walks to the center of the stage and finishes the poem. It's got those three parts to it. I think it's probably that odic form that guided Shakespeare as Shakespeare began to develop something like a three-part sonnet that grew out of a two parts on it. It's got these three components to it. Carl is nothing if not a real scholar of that sort of historical continuity and change. Mm -hmm. I don't know if your audience will have a chance to look at the poem, but it's really worth looking at visually um, to see something like that structure. It's not metrical the way the ode might be. It doesn't rhyme the way some of the odes might like Keats's but it's got a real sense of balance to it. The lines have a kind of weight and heft and equal measure to them. And it's in these two sections. So if it's an ode, where's the third section? And it may mm. be implied in the way this poem finishes. If you look at the number of lines in the first section, I think there are 14. And that sort of rings a bell with a sonnet. And if, there, if you count the number of lines in the second section, there are 11. So here's the thing that blows my mind. 11 is to 14, almost exactly what 8 is to 6. Proportionally, this poem is exactly the design of a sonnet. So he's moving back and forth between the ode and the sonnet.
1: Something that occurred to me—I thought—I was thinking actually about Petrarch, and you—you ju- you just said, you know, that octave and sestet uh, is a kind of sonnet, right? The Italian or Petrarchan sonnet. Yeah. That line, if wild. I was once more gentle. I thought of that that apparition of the wild animal in a Petrarchan sonnet, right? And just that meditation on that elusive thing that's just beyond your grasp. And for the speaker to have been that thing that was once beyond that grasp, it's just so beautiful and evocative.
0: That's a wonderful
1: connection.
2: Yeah. And the other thing to notice about the 14 and the 11 is that the sonnet tradition itself, you know, so when Hopkins takes on the sonnet, he tries this thing called the Kirtle sonnet, which is basically the same thing as a sonnet, except shortened. And lo and behold, it's 10 and a half lines. It's 11 lines. So even within the sonnet tradition himself, he's sort of matching the 14 line traditional sonnet and then the Kirtle sonnet of Hopkins that was invented in the late 1800s.
0: That's really cool. I think that's exactly right. Now, one of your viewers might say, do you think he was thinking about all this stuff when he was writing the poem? <laughs> yeah. There's a yes and no answer to that. Of course not. You couldn't sit down with your blank piece of paper and say, now I'm going to write a two-part poem that's got 14 lines and 11 lines, and it's going gonna, it's gonna to ghost the Petrarchan sonnet and the Shakespearean sonnet and the Kurdle sonnet of Hopkins. It's going to do all that stuff. But probably, because I know Carl to be a really vigorous, restless reviser. those are the kinds of discoveries somebody makes when he or she is working with a draft of a poem. And I can see him delighted by something like that
1: but what i love most about this poem is how interested the poetic speaker seems in surfaces and appearances and what might be beneath those surfaces and how actually the surfaces might have a kind of value so when we say surface um or superficial you might think of that as something artificial or ornamental but that there's a kind of otherworldliness to everything that he sets up as a statement or description in this poem. And I wonder if we could just get into that first section and see what he's setting up in his meditation on autumn.
0: Well, he's setting up a method of inquiry. He's really meditative. He really is about how a supposition can be turned over and over and over in one's mind and opened up or looked through or looked underneath, as you said, to make some kind of, in this case, really a kind of audacious set of discoveries that begin at the end of the first section with questions and that conclude at the end of the second section with a couple of really large statements. And you're right about tone. He's all about tone or mood, let's say. And that tone is of a remarkable proximity to us or intimacy. Carl is nothing if not a poet who is trying to attract our companionship, our company. He wants us to go along with him. And everything is about that closeness. And to achieve that, like in this poem, he seems to be humble. Whatever it is that some nights can rescue cricket song, like I don't know what it is. There's this baffling in <laughs> in Carl, this this questioner. Whatever it is, tonight it's working, he says in the first long sentence. And then an even longer sentence, he, you know, he gives this, this very particular set of images. Let's listen to the crickets. Let's look at the leaves. And how we get from there to joy and despair and ambition, I don't, I don't know. But we do. Oh, yeah. it has to do with this turning over in his mind the supposition that he puts into play. What is it about these things, these two things? So that that's one of the things I see about the structure. So if you think of this as in
2: conversation with Keats's two autumns, right. Keats actually ends on the crickets. In the last little bit of, of, of Keats's ode to autumn, you, you hear the hedge crickets sing. Carl is picking up right where Keats left off. Right. What is it about the crickets that make us notice them? And then turning to the leaves as they're falling in autumn, and you could see him sort of tossing in bed, the hour's toss. And then that being related to the leaves being tossed by the wind as they're falling, the dream of leaves being limited to tossing. So that word toss comes up twice right there in the first uh the first stanza.
1: Yeah, that's interesting. And you know, I love in this first section how he sets up a a really interesting like philosophical question but it's emotional as well i think i love that most about his poems that the, that intellect and emotion that they're intertwined they're one and the mm-hmm. same you know and so i'm looking at the the beautiful lines in that second sentence of that first section The hours toss with the apparent weightlessness of leaves when each leaf seems for once its own dream. I love the assonance of that clause, to The dream, the leaf, the seeming. Again, I feel that Petrarchan quality of what appears, what seems. Not part of the larger, more general dream of leaves being limited to tossing with either diminishment or renewal. When why should those be the only choices? I, and, and the notion that we are being so limited in our vision, that we're so deprived if that's the only way that we can view. And that's the moment where elongating that sentence and saying, when why should those be the only choices? A, a lesser poet would have just ended the, the sentence on renewal. Why should those be the only choice? No, when why should those be the only choices? The connective tissue that he's creating between these clauses in the sentence make me see how he's connecting the tree to the bigger questions of our lives. And then as you say, these insistent questions what about joy and despair? What about ambition? And of course, I'm thinking of um, Keats's questions too. Where are the songs of Spring I, Where are they? You know, these the insistence of questions that are difficult to answer. I, I just love that.
2: So one critic says of Carl Phillips' poetry that halt and hesitation are his trademarks. And i love that because you get that sense in this poem, too, where you think, "Well, what about this? but maybe about this and 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 what if we think of it this way? And when you're doing that in the poem itself, there's a way that it's imitating the tossing of the leaves themselves as they're falling from the tree. So with all of these commas, you get the feel within the syntax itself of the leaf sort of falling and drifting and being blown this way and that as it comes down, so the hours tossed with the apparent weightlessness of leaves when each leaf seems for once its own dream, not part of the large... Right, so there's this back and forth, this tossing in the wind built into the poem itself as it's talking about this leaf as as it's falling.
0: And that restlessness is a really productive part of his whole poetic. He's restless about form, he's restless about subject, especially staying on a subject. He's moved by constant shifting. And That happens really concretely in the syntax itself, as Abram was talking about in those hesitations. He takes a sentence and rips it open, Mm. or takes a clause and rips it open, steps inside it and proposes a comment on the thing that he's just said, or even more than a comment, a doubt or a question or an alteration (laughs) of the thing that he's just said. The result of that Mm. is, to me, a kind of almost... Unmatched tone of meditation. Reading a poem of his is, mm-hmm. I imagine, like the process of thinking through a thing. And syntax itself becomes the sort of architecture for meditation.
1: There's a restlessness there, a meditative quality there, and a loneliness or a solitude. And I I don't mean Mm -hmm. loneliness necessarily in having a negative connotation, but just to be truly Alone, but also constantly gauging that aloneness or solitude against the world or against other kinds of stimuli that are coming to it, and an uncertainty about how to finally land on those stimuli. You know, in the first section, there was an apparent weightlessness. In the second section, there's this version of autumn where the stars' reflections on the river. So it's not the stars themselves, it's their reflection. On the river looks tonight So the stars reflections On the river tonight look At one moment like freight Thrown overboard At the next, like signal lights, to have freight that falls overboard off of a boat, it's discarded. It's just trash. But then the second one is almost the water as if illuminated from within and then up above beyond the surface. That is just sublime. It's beautiful.
0: Yeah, sublime is a good word for it. I think he intends that ethereal, numinous landscape. I think he does. But there's those two parts again. Here's this little thing. Here's the stars on thrown off this boat. And oh, yeah, they're like signal lights. What would the signal be signaling? So there's, again, this very large generalizing gesture, which is a similar tension to what he set up in in that first section.
2: It ties into the restlessness that we were talking about, and that's so apparent in the, in the, this verse. There's a restlessness that's seeking rest, and there's a way in which the way I read a lot of Carl's poetry is that each poem is a sort of, you know, as Frost would say, a momentary stay against confusion. But but in Carl's yeah. case, it's a sort of a sense of momentary rest, a momentary insight mm-hmm. that's going to work for the time being. So this is this is one thing he said in an interview, which I think applies well mm-hmm. to this poem. He says. I write into a space of unknowing in order to surprise myself both by what I encountered and by what I do with that encounter, how I think about it and around it.
0: It's as if we're, again, weighing options, leading toward what may be a decision but finally isn't. It's going to be a kind of contradiction at the end, in fact. There's another version. He says, holiness has no limit. how do we get there? Holiness has no limits there, only two requirements. And here are the two requirements. They're also contradictory. To be hidden, to adore what's hidden. Again, two parts to it. Since we we were talking earlier about tone, I'm struck by the necessity in this poem of not being satisfied with a single thing, with requiring two parts to the poem, two parts to the ode, which results in a third part, and... I'm thinking of Keats again, and Keats's supposition that the, the most significant tone for a lyric poem is the tone of melancholy. And to Keats, that melancholy is two-parted. It's a narrative formula. This is looking at Keats's poem, Ode on Melancholy, which is my favorite of his odes. She dwells in with beauty, part one, beauty that must die part two. So there's a narrative progression to the thing that results in melancholy, to observe the remarkable thing, beauty or unendingness or something like that. And then the absolute realization that that beautiful thing is temporary, that that it's going to die. And that results in the speaker's, oh, that sorrow, that world sorrow. I feel Carl really deliberately working that same kind of formula, to be hidden and to adore what's hidden, then resolves, this is where I've been leading, in the third thing in this poem, which he doesn't specify, but it's clearly there, the third thing being both of these things abide constantly at the same time in this sort of heightened lyric state. Yeah.
1: Oh my God, that's so great. And it what then happens if we take that reading of this poem is that it's an argument for a way of seeing and a way of perceiving what might be at first hidden, but the very nature of yeah. it being hidden and the adoration of it is part of the poetic process, but it's bigger than just poetry. It's just a way of inhabiting the world and perceiving it, right?
0: It is. It's bigger than poetry. What he arrives at he's calling holy is not in any way conventionally religious, but it has to do with something like soulfulness or connection to not just other people or other imaginations, but this long sweep of time in this body of water.
1: With with all that uh, we've learned uh, in our discussion of this poem, would you be willing to read it for us one more time?
0: You bet it's really fun to read his poems and you have to read them slowly to let the phrasing reveal itself unpack. So here's Carl's poem to autumn again, whatever it is that some nights can rescue cricket song from becoming just more of the usual white noise tonight it's working. The hours toss with the apparent weightlessness of leaves when each leaf seems for once its own dream, not part of the larger, more general dream of leaves being limited to tossing with either diminishment or renewal. When why should those be the only choices? What about joy and despair? What about ambition? If wild, I was once more gentle. There's a version of autumn where the stars reflections on the river tonight. Look at one moment like freight thrown overboard. At the next like signal lights cast up through water by a city submerged where the rivers deepest. There's another version. Holiness has no limits. There, only two requirements. To be hidden. To adore what's hidden.
1: Ah, what a great reading. Thank you again. It's such a pleasure to have have you just have such a deep understanding of Carl Phillips' long career, but also to you're his friend you know and I, I just love listening to you talk about his work with so much enthusiasm and admiration and insight and it, it, i learned a lot from this conversation so thank you so much
0: my pleasure i learned a lot too speaking with both of you
2: To learn more about Carl Phillips, please visit our website at poetryforall.fireside.fm.
1: And you can also subscribe to Poetry for All wherever you get your podcasts. And please remember to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter.
2: Thank you for listening.